There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Okay, buying multiple investment properties or multiple properties in general. There was a question in the Facebook group and, you know, they say, oh, you talk a lot about uh, buying, you know, your first home and the second property, but what if someone wants to buy property two, property three, and so forth? Yeah, one word, diversification. Diversification. <laughs> so, end of the podcast. So, we've, we've, what we've got is our campfire chat. We've we've cranked up the fire. Vince Scully's here uh, from Life Sherpa. John Pigeon's here, who's the host of the Mind and Property Podcast. And we've just got an informal chat going on. We've got a heap of questions from the Facebook group, and I've harvested the kind of most popular ones. And before we start... I think it's important that we go around and actually just almost do, if it was like a debate, you know, give your own opinion, your own view on it, and whether you want to touch on the ethics of it, the, I don't know, what you think of it. So, Vince Scully, Life Sherpa, buying multiple properties, what's your take? Um, Well, real estate's obviously got a place in just about every diversified portfolio, um, how much and when is the question we have to have to answer, um, and you know, when you start thinking about this, and I have a goal to buy three, four, five properties, or ten properties in ten years, or whatever the strategy is, dealing thinking about it in terms of number of number of properties seems to me to be the the wrong angle, and what matters really is around the value and why you're doing it. So is Two properties at three hundred each, better or worse than one property at six hundred. Um, and we, we can get and, into and all that, is yeah. It, you know, if you start with the question, how many properties do I need to retire? You're sort of asking the wrong, starting from the wrong place. Uh-huh. It's how much income do I need, and now what's the best way to get there? And real estate will form an important part of that for for most people. So I, I don't know whether number of properties is a particular goal. Do you have uh, investment properties yourself or properties that you I, own? I don't now, but I have yeah. in the past. Yeah. And, you know, for most Australians, uh, yeah, most Australians, um, real estate has been an important part in building their financial assets. And anyone who suggests that the question is shares or property is mistaken or deluded or lying. Mm. And it's really how much of each and why are you doing it? So what's the goal? Um, you know, real estate's been a great way of growing assets because you can leverage. It's generally a pretty poor way to generate retirement income because the cash yield is so low and the expenses are so high. So why are you doing it? 
Um, but almost all of our members would have that on their radar, mm. if not already. John, do you have any opening statements given that you are the, the property guy? Yeah, look, all valid comments, Vince, as always. I think uh, with property, the difference, and not comparing the two assets, shares and properties, but the difference with property is generally speaking, most people will want their own home to live in at some stage over their life. Um, I interviewed a young lad this morning who has no visions of living in his own home, but I'm sure that will change over time mm-hmm. as as, um, as he well, gets it just, makes, just makes good financial sense over your lifetime. Yeah, so I think that's a huge factor in deciding what your long-term outcomes are because um, you, you're taking on probably the biggest debt of your life when it's your own home um, because usually they want bigger and better a lot of, in a lot of cases. But um, going back to the word capitalism and uh, I suppose is it ethical, you can argue that anything's good, can't you, if, you, um, if you're passionate about it enough. But I, I think, yeah, growing a portfolio and having four or five properties, yes, it's, it serves four to five people or families with, with a roof over their head. Um, at the same time, you're growing your wealth. But I agree, Vince, there's no... It's not the number of properties; it's the quality of assets in your in your portfolio, regardless. Yeah, I must admit, I, I struggle with the why buying rental property could be unethical, because there's a third of households in the country rent. So if nobody buys property, what are they going to do? So if you argue that private ownership of rental property is inherently evil, then the only alternative is for the government or the charitable sector Step to provide it. And yeah. that's not going to happen. And that's A, not going to happen and B, probably not particularly useful. So just on that, there's comments, you know, because you, you put these posts up in the Facebook group and you get the comments like, um, stop buying investment properties, you're just push, pushing up the prices of other properties. I mean, before we kind of go on and discuss that, I want to say number one, like this is uh, this podcast called My Millennial Money. There's a lot of people who listen to this who want to invest in property, invest in shares and to grow their wealth to have a better life for future them. And we totally want everybody to have a good future life and invest. So if you've fundamentally got a, a an ethical issue with the concept of buying investment properties, I'd probably say stop listening to this episode. <laughs> the only reason why, because... What but, ha- but wait till the mid-roll ad. Wait till the mid-roll ad so I can clip the ticket. <laughs> but I think the reason why, because often like if I don't agree with something... I will listen to it anyway just to hear the gotcha moments or the and it just it doesn't serve any purpose so now I just kind of like I don't have to engage so like we are talking about uh, buying multiple investment properties because there's a heap of people who want to think about this as a wealth building strategy so and I might ask Vince because I saw you've got some data there from ABS. I don't know if it's relevant to this, but um, no, you, I just like carrying it around. Yeah. But, <laughs> but no, uh, no, but like uh, the ABS data I pulled off was just looking at household balance sheets and said, so, well, what do Australians, who are the second wealthiest households in the world, by the way, um, just behind the Swiss, and two thirds of Australian households' assets are in real estate, mm. and most of the rest is super. Does that surprise you? Um, it does a little um, when you look at the size of the super pie. Um, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that most Australians own real estate. 
um, mm. yeah, big chunk of household. So half of that, uh, sorry, five, five eighths of that. That's just over half, isn't it? Five eighths of that is the family home. So the the value of the family home as of twenty twenty one. Yeah, I think there might be twenty eighteen yeah. stats because ABS okay. is a so, bit late doing it, but I don't think it matters. So the the value of the family home from two thousand eighteen to two thousand twenty one has probably gone another twenty percent. But so probably has the value of super. So whether the ratio has really changed or not, yeah, I don't know. But nonetheless, the point being that it it's a big chunk, yeah, and you know you multiply that by eight million, nine million households, it's a lot of real estate. It is, and um, it's a big chunk of people's wealth. So yeah, what happens to property happens to the country. And whether it yeah. goes up or down affects everyone. The whole property market, it just feels like this big Ponzi scheme in a way because like every time there's a freaking financial crisis, the government step up and say, we'll give you money to um, to get into the market sooner, which is it's pretty much stimulating the building industry. Yeah. Well, it's and a all. great way of creating employment. Yeah, and it's just at what point, like in the last 20 what is it, 2021 now, 2022 actually, where it started 2022, for the last 20 years, the government's always had grants and, um, you know, exemptions for property all around Australia, different mm. state governments mm. of the day, yeah. federal government. Like at what point do you just somehow lower taxes and let more money flow? Is that too mm. philosophical? <laughs> no, look, and, and on that point, I think, in the last, and I was interested to know what, what that date was. Do you want to pass me my laptop, yeah, please? Um, but I, I think at, it's the 1718. Because yeah, 1718. From 2018 to 21, most capital cities have had some growth. Most. Most. Now, houses that is, not always units or apartments, but let's park in houses for the minute. So it's actually divided the wealth. It's divided the the population of Australia even more so than it had prior to that because of if you weren't in property um, or in, in asset classes such as that, you've there's there's been a, a, a bigger shift mm. between the rich and the poor and that's probably where that whole ethical thing comes in. Yeah, but if you don't buy them, who's going to provide rental property? That's to my mind mm. the, the fundamental question. Yeah, well, if... Rising house prices is bad, and maybe it is, maybe it's not, but if we take the view that rising house prices is bad, then more people are not going to be able to buy, therefore more rental properties are needed, therefore we need more landlords. Mm. So I just don't quite get the... No, the I don't understand, point. but I'm just trying to think why they would be coming with that point of view, yeah. that's all. But, but rising house prices are fundamentally driven by lack of supply. Mm. And, and that's not changing anytime soon. And and to fix that problem, we need to get rezoning and development approvals out of the hands of local councils. Mm. And as you say, that's not going to happen anytime soon. So so absent an excess of supply, real estate's always going to rise at with wages and with the availability of credit. Because your marginal buyer is you know, buying with debt. And to your point before, Glenn, the availability of credit is always going to be there because it props up so much of the Australian economy and 
mm. governments and it, it's the whole- all like it all goes down to infrastructure and greenfields <laughs> and actually wanting to increase either if it's regional centers with fast trains into Sydney or Brisbane uh, you've got it's a water issue with infrastructure it's it's just it's just a wild thing and I, I, I guess we're not solving that today no. but um, it's just on that whole ethical thing like it's don't buy an investment property you're just wrecking it for the rest of us trying to save her a house well one are you seriously on a budget are you seriously sacrificing to save a deposit because we've had so many listeners who have tried to get into their first property and oh we had to sacrifice we had to not go out as much and i'm not saying that's everyone and i'm not saying it's easy but it is hard and if you look at the data i'm just looking on instagram not instagram on on the web here i think it's only maybe less than 5% of Australians own two properties or more. Do, have you got the actual? Um, well, the, a, the ATO stats say so you've got um, one and a half million rental property claimers with one property. Now, many of that will be couples, both owning the same property. But there's one and a half million taxpayers returned rental income in 2019. Um, effectively unchanged from 2017. Yeah. The number they have two is 400,000. Mm. And the number with six or more is 20,000. So it's actually a very low... Yeah. So the number of taxpayers who... So there's 13 million people in the workforce. So 1.6 million. Well, call it 2 million taxpayers with an interest in one or two properties. Yeah. So, and... And, and many of those will be the same property. Mm. Because they're couples, yeah, yeah, or joint ventures. But the the owner occupier market makes up between sixty to seventy percent of all properties sold. Yeah. Um, so, well, seventy percent of Australian households own or own outright or own with a mortgage the property they live in. Yeah. So when you take that into account, uh, who buys more with the motion putting the prices up, owner occupiers or investors? Well, if you've got half an idea about investing, we're not trying to pay too much for a property, whereas mm. an owner-occupier that's wrapped up in the, in the facade of the home or the street or the school zone or whatever, oh, we're going to pay 50 grand, 100 grand too, too much or, or more than the next person. Yeah. And it's largely a, a new property argument, I think, because there's half a million property transactions a year in Australia of which 110,000 are new detached dwellings and about another 70 or 80 real estate. So 200,000 of those are new properties and the for- they're the only ones the foreign buyer can buy. So that, um, yeah, so new properties are on the whole more expensive than existing properties because they're the marginal supply. So only when delivering new property allows you to make a profit Selling it, will it be delivered? So unlike in the US where you have spec- speculative building, we don't have speculative building largely in Australia. Most properties are built to order in effect. But in fact, all those 109,000 detached dwellings are substantially all built to order. Yeah, so if you're talking, say, one-bedroom, two-bedroom apartments that are new, 
Right, that's a, a, a large portion of new buildings, isn't it, going yeah, on? 70 or 80,000 of the 200,000, yeah. Yeah, so are they of any interest to a first home buyer trying to get into the market? I'm not sure. They're, they're not the ones... Perhaps put, they should be. Well, maybe they should be, but it... Um, but are we moving to this thing where it's like we look at big cities around the world, like uh, like a lot of people that maybe grew up in Asia have got no problem coming down mm. and living in an apartment. Like, mm. are we transitioning? And I've said this for years, like Sydney is an international city, mm. you know, good luck buying. Like just, you're going to have to rent and do your investing elsewhere. Mm. I mean, as an empty nester, I'm quite happy in my two-bedroom unit. Yeah. Um, Downsized from the big family home. And it's perfect for someone like yeah. you, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. And it's, it's warmer in the winter because you've got the building around you keeping it warm. Mm. It's cool in the summer because you get cross breezes. And it's secure if you lock it up and go. Mm. Like, what's not to like? The, the most common conversation I have is for for a first home buyer saying, "Do I buy a two bedroom unit in an area that I might be living, or do I go and buy a freestanding house somewhere else that's purely an, an investment?" Um, and that's going to increase. Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of the apparent difference in performance between houses and units when you look at median house prices, not necessarily talking about individual properties yep. at this point, is obscured by the amount of money that gets spent into improving the freestanding house stock. So it's about 1% of the value of houses are spelt on renovations every year. Mm. And the vast bulk of that is spent in houses rather than units. Most people don't spend much money renovating an apartment. Yeah, well, it's limited, isn't and it? And so... If there was a 1% difference in performance and capital growth, well, that's probably explained by the improved quality of the stock and it may not actually translate to profit for an individual investor. And if you look at a you know, two-bedroom unit in the middle ring suburbs of Sydney, you know, the classic six-pack, it probably has as much, it probably has more land value in it than a you know, four-bedroom house in Rouse Hill. But you... Like because, it, it, because the land value... The land is, value, but not the individual unit. Well, it's the same thing because you own the land as an owner. So if you look historically at the growth of that particular unit over the last 10 years, how does that compare to a freestanding house in the same suburb? And generally I would say it's lower, but if you deduct the amount spent on improvements, mm. I think that gap narrows... And it's probably skewed a bit by the amount of new investor stock. I mean, these are numbers are really hard and you obviously mm. spend your, your life looking at these, but the raw numbers I think hide a lot. And if you say land is what matters, I think most people would agree with that. Yeah. But if you look at the land content of a yeah, six-pack in Strathfield, well, Strathfield, let's call it Marrickville. So yeah. It's probably a bit more For everyone useful. In regional Australia, this, that's in Sydney. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, the land component of your seven hundred thousand dollar two bedroom house is a uh, two bedroom apartment yeah. is probably higher than the land value in your six hundred thousand dollar house and land package in Rouse Hill. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. It's but it, it's all about well, when did I buy it? What did I pay for oh, it? Sure. What's yeah. it worth today? And medians mean nothing because you can't buy the median property, and mm. that's not what you're selling when it comes to sell it. So. Yeah. We do have to be careful with these numbers and you're obviously looking at 
individual properties. You've got a better handle on that. Mm. But to just to draw broad brush conclusions that says um, I should have an aspiration to buy a house rather than a unit because it's going to go up in price better is sort of missing the point about your your home because your home is about consuming accommodation for the next 40 years. Yeah, and, and don't you see so often that someone will go and live in a home that they don't – in a location where they don't want to live purely because that's what they can afford. Hmm. So, again, it's the argument of, well, do I do that? In your example, Rouse Hill, do I go out there and spend six, 700K or do I wait and save for another two years? Do you know what's interesting? Like you listen to a lot of different Americans, right? And if a lot of you have met Americans, a lot of you are Americans, blah, blah, blah. They move around a lot, like for college or they getting do a new job. Over So it's this, like maybe as Aussies, the next generation, it could be, well, if we do want to buy a house and to live in it and consume, because hmm. well, it, it, it's consumption, it's not we, investment. No, that's right. We can't live in Sydney and own a house within 10 kilometres of the capital city. Let's have a look at Adelaide. Let's have a look at Hobart. Because I dare say, like, probably now more than ever, most of the capital cities around Australia, if not all of them, will have good work and good opportunities for your career. Like, it might not have been like that 20 years ago in Mm -hmm. Adelaide. I'm making something up here. Mm -hmm. But honestly, like, I think we need to change our mindset with home ownership to be like, I've just got to focus on my career, get keep out of consumer debt and understand that, yeah, when I... Because it's funny, like in the sound financial house that I do... It's not it, a sound financial flat? Sound financial <laughs> apartment. <laughs> um, like there was a question the other day, like, oh, at what point do I factor in, you know, saving for the house and all this? No, buying a house is a lifestyle decision to live in. Yes, it, well, sorry, which one you buy is, but the rent or buy decision under almost all conceivable economic circumstances over a long enough period will be cheaper. To rent. No, it'll be cheaper to buy. To buy than That's to right. Over a long enough period, and mm. I can't stress that over a long enough period, long enough, but be, oh, strongly enough, because it could be a long time. If you bought real estate in Perth 10 years ago, you're probably still behind on value. If you mm. were somewhere in the, you know, the expanding northern or southern suburbs of Perth 10 years ago, it's probably worth less than you paid. And I think Darwin as well. It's, yeah. In a lot of cases, it's, it's just caught up in the last six to 12 months, but in a lot of cases, it's still unders too. So, yeah. But it, it's the whole, you're right, it's mindset of, well, okay, where can I live? Where do I want to live? And, and I'd go as far to say you can get most jobs, not only in capital cities, but probably the, the top 10 regionals as well. Mm. Um, and the ability to get there and come back again is has been uh, accelerated, hasn't it, with lifestyle. And, and this is the whole like philosophical thing. Like that's a hard pill to swallow to go, oh, if I want to own a house, I have to move away from my friends and family. I mean, and yes, I own my house. Well, I've got a mortgage on it and it's, you know, I got it in the right place and all that. But you live regional, don't you? Yeah, Central Coast, regional. But I mean, it's, you know, life's tough and there's some really crap things about Australia, yeah. but bloody hell, there's some really good things. Yeah. And, but the point that you make is largely a, um, a trade-off. You know, do I want to live near my friends and family more than I want a backyard? 
Mm. That's the decision you're saying. And if if that's the answer, then the original's probably for you. If that's not the answer, then, yeah, maybe a two-bedroom unit in Marrickville is the answer. But I, I think a lot of Australians don't appreciate what the future might look for them as well. Like, again, case in point with a young man I interviewed today, he's in his 20s, all's good, got a um, multiple properties in his portfolio, rent vesting, um, lean cost of living. But 10 years' time, could be married with three kids. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, that's a, a complete dynamic change, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's like well, you, you mentioned the backyard. So do we sit here today and say, well, there's a pretty good chance that I'm going to have a partner and there's a reasonably high chance I'm going to have kids. So do I almost forecast that now and go and buy somewhere yeah. that's going to um, fit that criteria so that I've got not a backup clause but I'm, I'm just thinking of one eye on the future. Well, you could end up with a, a gamer kid who never leaves their bedroom and the backyard's a complete waste of space. Yes. Yeah. But the whole thing is, it's this whole, you know, everyone gets the heebie-jeebies or whatever and oh, I've got to buy a property, got to buy a property. I think we need to really drill down of, like you said, John, best case scenario, buying my first home, I want to live in it for the longer term and call it home or I'm going to camp there and then when I move out, it will be still held by me and be turned into an investment property because I think it's hard to skin both cats at once. It's very hard. I mean, the decisions you'd make to buy somewhere you want to live are almost certainly not the decisions you would make if you're buying a property as an investment. And it's really hard to make those two work in the same piece of real estate. Mm. And I think I'm not saying that, you know, remember Joe Hockey solution was just get a better job. Like, <laughs> I don't think you can it, become a podcaster. Yeah, you can become a podcaster. Um, like I know that it's hard out there. Like I've got friends who have been in trying mm. to save for a house deposit for years, two good incomes. By the way, did a lot of overseas <laughs> travel. By the way, got the car loans. By the way, like there does come a point where like I know people who are driving around in a $3,000 car, yeah. not going on overseas, really saving. I haven't been going overseas for two no, years. No, you haven't. Um, but it's just different and we can't please everyone. But I guess it's just a good conversation to have where I would, respectfully disagree with the premise that if someone bought an investment property, it's categorically pushing up the price of homes to live in. Like, is there enough people buying? Like, I think the external pressures are pushing the price up more than people buying a property to invest. Well, I think... I think I'm understanding your question. I'm probably uh, saying it really wrong. I'm thinking about I, it, thinking, oh, I'm thinking probably saying it really bad. Investors buying investment properties are not the major reason behind price rise. Yes, because a lot of investment properties, like you you hear like apartment buildings that it's investment grade, you know, the first four levels or whatever that people, they're not desirable for quote unquote homes forever. They're just apartments to rent, right? But but also just the pure quantity of investors buying properties, like the stats before, Vince, it's it's three in ten. Mm. Um, seven in ten are owner-occupiers. Mm. So it's not the investors. I, I mean, the, the investor is the marginal buyer, though. So at the mar- you know, where you have a shortage of supply compared to demand, the investor is the marginal buyer. So they mm. will... They're the ones who are, in effect, setting the price. 
because they're the demand that comes in and out of the market. If you had a glut of properties, that clearly wouldn't be the case. But you know, quite obviously, we in Australia, which is probably to explain explains most of our outrageously high house prices by it's just real a, standards, a stock issue is a, a supply issue, and the presence of the investor is largely a function of the supply and price of credit. Okay, so let's let's thrash that out a bit more on this campfire. Need put more wood on. Mm. More so marshmallows. Let's take uh, Bondi as a bad example. Let, let's take Blue Bay. Nice beachside suburb. Um, Probably not too many investors in Blue Bay. Case in point. Yep. Yep. That's a, that, that, that's a very good point. So, in order for an investor buying a two bedroom unit in Zetland to impact the price in Blue Bay, you're relying on the ripple effect that says, well, if Marrickville goes up, Zetland goes up, then Rosebury goes up, and then, yeah, out from there. But yes. the, is a buyer in Zetland likely to be a buyer in Blue Bay? Highly unlikely, no. I suspect. How funny is this? Because um, everyone I live in Blue Bay and, yeah, like most of my neighbours are own occupiers, right? Um, <laughs> must be a lot of, like, senior people there because when the last <laughs> census was out, I know people who got like um, an email or something to remind them that it's happening to fill it out online, we all got um, hard copies in the post. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I call this lifestyle cycle or life stage cycle where we, we grow up uh, living in a certain area, living in our parents' home, mm-hmm. generally speaking, and they're in that home after working for 20 or 30 years. So they've built their savings and wealth and, and they're living probably in a better area than they did 20 years ago, fair to say. So the kids become used to that area and the kids say, well, hang on a minute, I'm used to this area and my friends are here. And well, yeah, Why can't I buy my first house yeah, in Yeah, I, I want to I <laughs> live here as well, but hang on, I can't. So what do I do? Well, um I have to go else, elsewhere to do that for the first time and then the journey continues in 20 years' time. If they've made some good decisions, they'll be back up to... And that's always been the case. So, but is a lot of this commentary around these people that can't afford to buy in suburbs right now because we want it now? What yeah. about going and doing the hard yards like everyone does? Yeah. And I, mean, I think there is a bit of an expectations gap that yeah. a lot of the shortage is an expectations problem rather than a, a true supply problem. I agree. Um, but, I mean, I think the thing that does make it harder, um, you know, we spend less of our household income on real estate than we've done for most of the last 40 years. But because that's, you know, dual income, it's higher incomes, we're borrowing over 30 years instead of over 20 years, mm-hmm. um, the deposit is the bit that's really got out of control that because that same amount of income supports a much bigger mortgage yes therefore your deposit's gone up so we probably do need to get used to the concept of you know buying on a 10% deposit instead of a 20% deposit and just accept that copping LMI accept cop that you know LMI is really just the the price of getting in now rather than waiting for another year to save the money. And in most cases, 
it will actually save you money over time. Yeah, because of the growth. Yeah. yeah. So you pay you know, 2% in LMI. If it takes you another six months and property's rising in 6% a year, mm. which is the average for Sydney over the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, You're in front. So million-dollar property, let's round the numbers to make our maths easier. Which is the median house price in, in Sydney. Sydney, Melbourne. Yeah. Ten um, percent deposit, hundred grand plus stamps. Called one hundred and fifty, a bit more expensive in Victoria. Um, have most people got one hundred and fifty floating around? A lot of people I speak to have been saving for a quite a, a length of time and do have that. What they can't get their head around is a eight hundred fifty k, nine hundred k mortgage. And arguably, if you don't have a household income of north of two hundred, you shouldn't have an eight hundred fifty thousand dollar mortgage. You can so, get one, but whether you should have one or not is another Correct. Question. Yeah, the banks might lend you the money, but yeah. So is it a deposit issue or is it a servicing cash flow lifestyle issue because I still want to go on my holiday and I still want to put the kids in good schools and et cetera? Certainly in our business, most people are a deposit constraint. Yeah. So then the conversation comes in, well, if I'm saving 50 grand on stamp because the government says I'm now charging a land tax and, and – no stamp duty, which I think will come in, uh, does that solve the issue for first home buyers? Or are they just um, wanting too much now and go and buy something for 500 grand and stop me moaning? Well, I'm not sure I'd be quite that harsh, but there's more than a germ of truth in that. And, you know, the quality of a dwelling, I mean, you may bitch and moan about building standards, but the inclusions in a home today... Um, are way more than they were mm. 20 years ago. And bill costs. And, um, yeah, and the cost of building that. Yeah, so granite bench tops, you know, we had um, laminate, mm. um, yeah, didn't have air conditioning, we had one bathroom, um, might have had one garage. We had carpet in the kitchen. <laughs> you were looking. You had kitchen. <laughs> Tell that uh, to kids these days. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and that's, I think, created this expectations gap. And that's to the point that you made about, well, you know, if I grew up in, in Mossman, well, my parents might have bought that house 25 years ago. Doing some hard yards. When it was, you know, $400,000. But still relatively not cheap. Like, because people go back, oh, prices were like, because my old man, like, I remember like 20 years ago, there was a block of land just down the road here. It was $100,000. And I remember him calling the real estate agent and said, mate, I didn't see the house on it. Like, if you didn't have the money then, you didn't have the money anyway. Well, that's true. But the multiples were different. I mean, yes. I mean, when I moved to Sydney in 93, yeah, you could buy a three-bedroom villa in Mossman for 400 Yeah, but what was... But, and that was four years' pay for a, a manager at... Accounting firm. So if you if you were six years out of uni, well maybe maybe eight years out of uni as a manager, that was four or five years. But I, I'm still saying it was still relative that maybe Blacktown wasn't the same price as Bankstown uh, as um, Mossman. Mossman. Like, was there still premium suburbs? Yeah, there, were, there definitely were. Yeah, I mean Mossman wasn't a well, it was more expensive, but yeah. it, it wasn't. Yeah. A top stream. Five. So if, if we park on that example for a minute. I know. You, it's always difficult to yeah, extrapolate I, from I individual properties. I don't mind that. Like a 100K um, wage, four years. Was a good wage. Was a good wage, $400,000 unit. Fast forward to today, a million dollars. 
for a property if we want to use that same so method that's, for so years. So that's same, that's more than double. So that same income. property is probably a million seven, a million eight now. One point eight. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so then in your example, and, that and, and a manager eight years out of accounting is probably making one hundred and fifty at best. Like yeah. we haven't seen those no. wages rise. Uh, yeah, one hundred and fifty yeah. at best. Yeah. yeah. So in your four year example, they need to be on five hundred, yeah. yeah. four hundred and fifty yeah. grand and, a year, and, and that's not happened. Yeah. Mm. Um, mm. yeah. But obviously, you're not borrowing at ten percent. You're borrowing at no. Um, yeah, but you've also got to look like. Um, you know, Qantas and, and, and you probably have a partner making the same now that you didn't really have as commonly then. But also to add to that, you know, Qantas, like COVID aside, like Qantas, American Airlines, Virgin, United are flying LA to Sydney daily. Mm-hmm. The same suite of companies would be going up to Europe daily yeah. and Asia. I doubt there was that much air travel and- That's right. Activity going on back then either. Yeah. So I mean, it used to cost a thousand dollars to fly from Sydney to Brisbane. Mm. Um, you can fly to LA for that now. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it, d- it just doesn't. It wasn't done, was it? Like no. you didn't fly. Hey, we're going to take a. Quick Sorry, I know there was a bit of a. No, that's all right. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Okay, we're back. Now, we actually are going to get into some of these questions. Look, I think that opening kind of chat, I think we can summarise and all agree that buying your first home is and can be bloody tough. Yeah. But we need to have a goal check, an expectations check, and really a vibe check of, like, what do you want to do with your life? And does it matter enough to you to give up those other things? Mm. All right, let's 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 run at this. Carolina has a good question. So, in relation to buying multiple properties, please could you maybe discuss the idea of having a growing debt forever, which I struggle with the idea. Staggering properties using the equity for the next, etc. How everyone how everyone feels about having a huge debt over you your whole life, is there a better way? So, I guess the premise is like you know, if you did want the four properties for whatever reason and you're just kind of leapfrogging with equity and scooping up more debt, 
Now, at some point, the banks may say, well, let's just chill out. Like, because each property that you add slightly adds, well, adds a little bit more complexity to the servicing. Yep. About 100, 150 on average. 150 what? K. Uh, reduced borrowing. Borrowing capacity on yep. each property. So, so it's not as wild as it used to be. No, but servicing is often not the problem these days. It's often the debt-to-income ratio caps. So most of the banks have now like brought seven? in. seven? Uh, six. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's reduced. Yeah. Once you get over six, you start limiting your options. Um, and that usually hits people before serviceability. So talk to us about the debt-to-income ratio. Yeah, the so-called DTI. Um, Do you want to just make sure that might? Yeah, the so-called DTI, debt-to-income ratio, which looks at your total debt divided by your total income. And a multiple of six is starting to limit your options. So, for example, with Macquarie, you get over six, they want a much bigger servicing surplus. So once you get over six, your serviceability actually drops off. I've seen banks go, some banks will go to nine, and um, but that usually gets people before they run out of serviceability, mm. unless they've got lots of other debt. Just to put that in perspective, there's a legislative three and a half times DTI in Ireland. Is really? That, wow. So that, that's heavily socialist. Well, I mean, that, that, w- that was brought in as a bit of a reaction to what happened in the GFC. But it is now- But Ireland really got spanked. It did, got hugely spanked. Mm. And the housing market has actually just about recovered. Yeah. I, I, hang on, just on my comments of Ireland being socialist, is the, what's the government there? Uh, the government is, um, it's a effectively Christian Democrat, which is slightly right of centre. Come in, dirty so prob- Mike. It probably would be <laughs> hey, left of the coalition. Uh, we're doing a okay. podcast. Our friend of the show, Dirty Mike, this is Vince. Not Coasty Mike. Yeah, this is Dirty Mike. Dirty Mike. Dirty Mike. Do you want to join in on the discussion? How you going, Mike? We'll Good to see you. Okay, so I... Uh, just, Hang on, I'm just going to press stop and I will get a mic because this is good to have someone on the street. Hang on. We're talking about investment properties. Okay, so our friend, if you've heard the podcast for many years, uh, Dirty Mike's been on the show before. We're recording this here today at Glee Coffee Roasters. Hey, Mike. It doesn't look, that, doesn't look that dirty to me. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, down a bit. Yeah. So we'll just talk. In fact, in. his hair's looking better than yours. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So, welcome to the show, Dirty Mike. He's Hi, everyone. Just, he's just bought a, a property and we'll have to get Dirty Mike and Jolie back for a bit of an update. We will. Once, yeah. we, once we break ground. Yeah. That's right. So, can I um, just- So, just back to Ireland yep. and yep. the government. And remember, that's where Australia was before the banks were deregulated in mm. the 80s. That three times used to be the answer. Yeah. Even when mortgage rates were in the threes in the 60s, yeah, that right. was the answer. So, you know, I don't think we should be too- hung up about it. But, you know, once you get over six, you start limiting your options, get to nine and you're really going to struggle. There's not yeah. too many people who do more than nine. So for, for the listeners, the household debt um, to income, when you look at the debt, um, you, you've got to take into account the, the running costs of your properties to date. So if you've got your uh, 30 grand a year of income on that one investment property, but it costs you thirty-five grand to run it. The whole negatively geared, gunning for capital growth strategy 
let you down when you want to continue to borrow. So really important to think about the strategy long term before you actually buy this yeah. thing. So just a question on the DTI, debt to income, that's more of an issue for the multiple property investors because when APRA want to throw a bucket of water on the market, they usually dick around with, we'll just increase the interest rate on investment properties as opposed to yeah, although that's around. relatively new. That, yes. That's probably something in the last decade. Mm. Um, but yeah, so we talked earlier about the investor being the marginal buyer. So if you want to hose down the housing market, well, what would you do? Will mm. you limit credit access mm. for investors? And how do you do it? Well, you can put the price up. Um, you can beat Which, up at the banks and tell them to stop lending to investors. Mm. Or you can impose um, these sort of broader limits where they say to the banks, well, yeah. Anything over six, we don't really like. Yeah. Now, as a multiple property in our portfolio, Dirty Mike, do you want to read Emma Jane's question there? Would be interested in a holiday house, views as a second property. Viewed as a second property. Views, yeah. yeah. I think a holiday house is like a, a boat that doesn't float, isn't it? <laughs> it's a well, land-based boat. Engine. Interesting that. Look, I, I've always said that 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago. Is there a butt coming? <laughs> well, you, you, you look at these holiday regions and they're, they're no longer, uh, a lot of them uh, are no longer just tourist towns that haven't got economy attached to them. So when, when we say holiday home, it's, it's a very broad term. Holiday home could be anywhere, couldn't it? Yeah. Uh, and I'm sorry, when I, when I said holiday home, I meant a holiday home that you actually use as a holiday home as opposed to one that happens to be in a holiday looking that you rent out. Correct, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so cake and eat it. Okay, I rent it out for short-term rental for 10 months of the year and I use it for two months of the year, for example, right? Just don't um, tell the tax office. If we're buying, um, if we're buying in good locations, uh, as in east coast of Australia, there's, it can actually perform two roles. You can. Well, I've been like just looking at random towns up the coast. Like I was looking at, I think, Sawtell or Southworth Rocks. Sawtell's expensive. Yeah, and I'm just like, oh, I don't actually have a million dollars to throw at a little rental property. You cannot buy very much in Sawtell for less than a million bucks. Uh, Southworth Rocks and Cat Eye as well have like a a low rental, um, a high rental demand at the moment. Vacancies Um, are non-existent, are they? Why is that? Well, it's just people moving up there. Like Port Macquarie is the, is well, Port God's Macquarie is the next Newcastle from Newcastle. It's actually quite a nice spot, and, mm. and it's actually mm. got a surprising amount of diverse economic activity. Mm. Well, they've got the university, you've got the airport, got the banking. Mm. Yeah, but even little towns like Scottshead, Harrington, um, Hathead, like all those, you, you're talking well into the sevens, eight hundreds now, which is quite um, obscene given that they're not a they wouldn't have 5,000 people in them a lot of them I want to talk a question here actually Dirty Mike do you want to read Celia's Thornton's question being put to work yeah good house great area but near a busy road and, and a train station good house great area further away from town Doing things like do things like busy road really matter in the long term, especially if you intend for it to be a PPOR for a minimum two years. Is that did you did I say that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is two years supposedly a long period? 
Well, I, the think way that, I think that's about the time when your, your name dries on the title. Well, mm. I think this is saying um, I want to live in it for a minimum of two years and then maybe move out and have it as an investment property. So, um, so you know, do things like train stations and yeah. busy roads matter? For well, I mean, once you've lived on a busy road, you don't want anything to do with it ever again. Yeah, and unless it's not going to become a busy road again, and, and it's, there's going to be a bypass or something yeah. go through. It it's, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're living in it or not. The mm. the fundamentals are the fundamentals. But near a train station's good. On a train line, different story. What do you mean? Well, well, you want to have your backyard be the railway line. And oh, it's a bit noisy, yeah. but walking distance <laughs> to a train station is nice. Thanks, Dirty Mike. Glad you came on to a. Class. I mean, I think I think the point of all of those things, those sort of negative features, you know, power lines busy roads, railways, they matter a lot in a down market. They matter less when the market's going up. Absolutely. Because your property will be the last one to sell. And so if you want to get out when the market's quiet, it's going, you're going to have to probably take a, a haircut. Whereas in a rising market, yeah, whatever, people don't really care yeah. too much. And that, that's an amazing point because at the moment we're in a rising market and you've got to be careful what you buy. And it will depend a bit on where you live too. Yeah, so if you are, um, yeah, if you're living on the North Shore of Sydney, being near the railway line is a huge plus. Mm. But as John said, being on it ain't so good. So what do they Dirty say? Mike said that. Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. So what do they say? You've you got to be walking distance, I think. But, yeah. yeah, if it's rattling your bed while you're trying to sleep at night, <laughs> then yeah. probably too east, close. East side walk rail is the, is the motto on the North Shore. So east side of the highway. And walk to the rail. Okay. And 800 metres is the magic number for a railway station. Wow. Sounds like rich people's problems. That, <laughs> it's like auto air steer when you went to buy a car. Automatic. Yeah, we get it. Power steering. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, did, you're I didn't at get me, it. <laughs> you're looking at me. Bluntly. I didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. There's a question here. Lauren Silvestro. How to set up to scale up? How to set yourself up to scale up? Example... If wanting to buy a second, then third property, how to ensure borrowing power and that there are other factors con- to consider besides income and savings history and habits, pres- uh, presuming performance of current property or properties will come into play too. If so, is it based on rental return or LVRs, etc.? So, John, um, yeah, if someone does want to go, I'm a filthy capitalist pig and I want to own all these properties and yeah, all that stuff... <laughs> like if they do want to do want to do that, and full disclosure, I may own a handful of properties. Yeah. So, Lauren, awesome question. I think um, the first of all, you've got to buy well the first time around. What I mean by that is, if you're wanting to build a property portfolio, I think you need to be thinking, what's my second purchase potentially going to look like before I execute on the first. To, to understand the cash flow requirements. So we, we talked about negative gearing before. That can impact that second property if you haven't got enough cash flow in that because of your servicing. So your situation's always different depending on your income in, in your life versus someone else's. But generally speaking, when Lauren talks about um, rental return, is it based on that? Absolutely, it has a massive part to play in it. Um, but your income's just as important, if not more. And then loan-to-value ratio, if you're going to pull equity out, to avoid lender's mortgage insurance, you want to be able to 
have the LVR at about 70% so you can pull out 10% and still have it at 80% and avoid that LMI. But if you're you're crazy aggressive and you want to take a punt and pay some LMI or um, capitalise it into your loan, then you can go up to 90 if you've got the servicing. Yeah. So there's three things really that drive your ability to borrow. There's equity, which um, obviously helps if you've bought a property that's rising quickly in value when it comes to buy the second one. Serviceability, which obviously goes to your income and the rental income of the property. So a good yield is probably a good good thing, but most banks will go, well, if you're making more than 6 or 7%, we're, we're going to cap it out That's anyway. Right. Yeah. And thirdly, debt-to-income ratio. And you can sort of fix that last one by using structures like trusts because your trust borrowing doesn't always count as your debt-to-income ratio. Mm. So as John said, you really want to be looking ahead to the next one when you buy this one. But also uh, there's a question here from um, Yana or Jana, sorry, Jana Ethel. She might be a Yana. Yana Vent. Uh, We're not that old, Vince. (laughs) I would like to hear your thoughts on purchasing structures for investment properties such as pros or cons of buying an investment property in a trust considering things such as um, land tax, joint joint ventures and distributing profits. Thanks. So you touched on that trust thing. I mean, you pull that thread and you'll suddenly have a few other issues. You will. That you didn't realise. Like land tax, um, stamp duty. um, Losses. Yeah, losses getting trapped, so negative giving is a bad thing. So, you know, they're not for the faint-hearted. So if you're, you know, geared to the gazoos to buy three properties, um, having negative gearing losses stuck in a trust is not a good look. Um, so they do come with disadvantages. They will solve some problems, so they will help get over your D- DTI problem. They will... Um, yeah, potentially allow you to stream that income to somebody else. They help with um, a whole uh, bunch estate whole planning, bunch, estate planning, whole bunch of issues. But they do create other problems. So land tax will usually be higher depending on the type of trust. Well, the threshold is usually zero, zero, isn't it? Depending on the type of trust. Yeah. Um, they complicate borrowing, limit your borrowing choices. So a lot of these, yeah, low rate lenders. Oh, they wouldn't don't, touch it. Don't want to know. Yeah. And you'll need a really good broker to find your way through that system. And the more complex it gets, the more likely you are to pay your broker. Mm. Yeah, so they don't yeah. want the headache. Yeah, yeah. yeah. joint venture is an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, They'd be able to. But can we rule out for disaster? For most can of we time. rule out categorically? And I can't think of a reason you could tell me otherwise. Why the hell you would buy a property in a company? I can think of no sensible reason to do it. And that's right. Like I'm, I, I just honestly, I had a client once and they thought they were cute um, and really complex. They bought their principal place of residence in a company for asset protection. Right. Duh. Uh, and I think they need a new accountant. Well, they probably didn't have one, but like, so the problem with the company, everyone, there's number one, the biggest thing, your tax rate is 30%, aka, 29. yeah, aka, uh, no capital gains tax discount. So that's number one. And that's probably the main one. Yeah. And the depreciation can create some horrible unwinding costs. Because mm. yeah. it just it fascinates me that, um, and particularly around share investing in some of these groups that we're in on Facebook, Vince, like, 
everyone wants the edge and wants to, oh, do I need to set up a trust or I need to get the investing edge? I will say everyone, there's not really an edge to anything. A lot of this stuff isn't hard and you don't have to overcomplicate it. Like I said to my lawyer, estate planning lawyer once, I'm like, well, what about protection on the principal place of residence? And he's like, you, you got a mortgage against it. Most bank, well, most creditors probably not going to run after you to get the 30 grand of equity or whatever. The, yeah. Like the mortgage in itself is good asset protection. That's right. And unless you're yeah, in a really high risk occupation or you're guaranteeing company loans, asset protection for most people mm. is not worth the cost of giving up your capital gains discount on the family mm. home. Mm. Um, and as you say, the mortgage does give you a lot of protection. When you come to sort of property two, three and four, if you get it right, there are some advantages of having it in a property, but you really want to have good equity, um, you know, plenty of income. So, But for example, like I introduced to John uh, before Christmas, somebody that I knew who you know, managed to have a spare $5 million sitting in their bank account and very- It's not me. No, it's not Dirty Mike. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, they they wanted to put that capital to work because, you know, it's getting nothing in the bank account. And in those situations, without any lending on the table, and he wasn't really interested in going to banks and digging around there- like a unit trust could be a really good idea. Mm. So we're not ruling out trusts. We're just saying, I think uh, these corporate structures for investing properties for most of us and most average Joe and Janes out there, it's going to be the extreme exception. Yeah. And there are a lot. Unless you've got significant wealth. And there is a lot of absolute crap mm. running around the seminar circuit. Yes. Oh, so, so people, people like. Can I mention names? Yeah, I don't give a crap. <laughs> Dominique Grabiza, mm. you know, flogging her. What's her funny trust called? Um, but it doesn't work, kids. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, there was a huge trend to having so-called hybrid trusts in they the They are the worst 90s, things on which, the planet. Um, well, some people are calling them property trusts. Yeah. Right? Um, and Chan and Naylor were big sellers of this thing in the mm. 90s, 2000s, 90s and 2000s. Yeah. And, yeah. The tax office will catch up on these things and lenders hate them. So you're actually creating more problems than you're solving. Mm. But you can play around strategically thinking with the percentage of ownership if there's more than you. Yeah. Um, And that's the big plus. So if you've got, you know, adult kids who who are still dependent on um, that you can stream income, you've got a stay-at-home spouse, you've got a disabled kid, um, you know, there are lots of family reasons why... Mm it can give you big pluses. But, you know, as I say, anytime anyone asks me about family trusts is I'd rather pay 30% to the tax office than 100% to my adult kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be Vince's son. Um, but on joint ventures, she asked about that here as well. Um, I personally think people won't have an alternative but to do some joint ventures to get into the property markets that they want to get into in the next five to ten years. So by joint venture, you mean buying it with someone who's not your spouse? Correct, yeah. Yeah, because uh, it just and, – and for those listening that don't quite get their head around it, um, people want to do joint ventures when, A, they haven't got enough money as a deposit, B, they haven't got enough servicing in terms of income, or, or C, they're shit scared to do it themselves and want to – 
hold hands with someone and go together and join forces. Yeah. Sounds like a recipe for losing friends to me. Well, I think it'll be multi-generational. I think that's going to be huge more than it is now. I think mm. that's what I've seen is this fam- like parents downsizing into a family home with oh, a son. Yeah. And- mm. I've done no less than five of them. Mm-hmm. and That's quite a lot. It is. Yeah. Uh, well, my first investment was a JV. Oh, you personally, not with your, your clients? Yeah, correct. Oh, right. okay. Yeah, and you want to trust the person you're doing it with, and have the same goals. Correct, and we talk about that on the podcast um, to make sure that we've got agreements in place, expectations. Um, it's it's no different to a divorce, in a lot of ways, right? You've got you can't guarantee that it's all going to work out rosy. You've just got to plan for scenarios along the journey. I mean, one of the along those lines, one of the things that causes a lot of problems for our members is people buying property with their parents. You know, so mum and dad think they're doing the right thing and going in halves with junior to buy the house. Right, so not a guarantor. That's right, yeah. Oh, we is. do a lot of guarantors, but the one that causes problems is either mum and dad go on and buy the house with the kids, so you lose a lot of your first home buyer benefits. Yep. And then when mum and dad, you know, are within 10 years of retirement, the bank's going to say, well, what's your exit strategy? Mm. So when you want to go and refinance... Mum and dad are now retired. The mm. bank goes, well, actually, I ain't lend you any more money because you're retired now. Yeah. And without transferring title to the kid and spending all that money on stamp duty, you you, know, you can't buy that yeah, new but, kitchen. So they're all and vice the versa. You know, where we see that a lot of this with ethnic families, where the kids borrow the money from mum and dad's house, and it just screws their servicing yes. for everything else. But on the multiple property things, I would suggest. You know, if, so if you buy your first investment property, it's like you buy your first home to live in and that's, oh, I don't know the process that well and it's scary and that. You kind of have a rinse and repeat of that same feeling when it is an investment property because it's another property purchase and I'm not living in it and I've got organized tenants and all that. And you don't have the nice warm fuzzies of it. Being that's right. Place. And then, you know, you might buy the second investment property and it kind of ain't no thang and then... I guess what I'm getting at is you probably need to chill out running and doing a JV if it is your first investment property anyway. Would you agree, John? Like, because more times than not, it can add complexity. Yeah, no doubt adds complexity because you've got another party with different set of emotions and personality and finances, but... on the contrary, I think it's a good way to fast track yourself into an investment if that's what you want to do. And and the difference, if you don't, is maybe three years of saving money or trying to wait for equity. It, it will start causing you problems when you go for the next one. So it's a great – I agree mm. that it's it's a low-impact rate of getting in mm. because you only have to find half the money. Yes. Um, but you know, most banks, when you come back looking for another loan, will go – well, I know you only own half of it, but I'm going to count the whole loan mm. against your serviceability. Yeah, and I call that a, joint and severably yeah. what um, what's, what's liable. Yeah. CB, CBA have a product CBA. specifically aimed at this. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot more that Property do mates, it now. I think it's and, and you definitely need to get one of those lenders. Um, there's probably half, at least six to eight now that do that. Um, so that's, that's your number one criteria. And then with the JV, a JV doesn't mean that you need a corporate structure either. 
No. Because often if you're doing a JV, you might be doing a, a mini development and then we'll hold it for a year and then flip it. Mm. Well, I certainly wouldn't want to be wasting delicious um, tax opportunities on the way out. Well, technically, it's probably a partnership rather than a joint venture, but yeah. yes. we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> we can. Um, another question. Let's have a look. Oh, there's one here from Emily Wallace, who's John's co-host on My Millennial Property. Oh, M. At what point does one consider commercial property in addition to residential? So, John, you're a property bandit. You're like, <laughs> property this and property that. Like, that's all you say. No, it's not. So that. rude. Yeah. Like, why don't you own commercial property yourself? Well, that I know of. I can't don't. afford it. I've got three kids and a mortgage. <laughs> Surely that's just appetite. It's whatever you want to do, really, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Look, it, it, it's not a game for young players. You've got to know what you're doing. And yeah. It's a different game. And, um, yeah, it's much more of an income play than a growth play. And you can end up with very long vacancy periods. But when you do get a tenant, they're often there for a very long time. Yeah, and they'll improve it. And then there's the usually. complexities around cash flow. You know, if you own an office and you're trying to rent it to someone, they may very well expect you to fund the fit out. Mm. Um, so it's an comp- entirely different game. Just because you know residential real estate means no. you know squat about re- commercial real estate. Yeah, and, and we don't do it ourselves. Um, but the bi- the big one I would see as a... I suppose a roadblock for people is just the amount of money you need to get in to start with. And usually they're wanting 30% deposits, which rule most people out to begin with. In terms of um, the, the bank the loan lender. structures, yeah. yeah. And then the second thing is, well, okay, I, I put in 30%, let's say it's a million dollars, that's 300,000, uh, but I also want my own home. So does that dance between what I want personally and and what I want as an investment? Okay, interesting real life case study. I've just purchased a commercial property. Are we defining commercial and commercial means sort of industrial as well? Yeah, I think anything that yeah. isn't so retail, residential, retail office, retail warehouse, warehouse, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I I I have a discretionary family trust, which is my kind of central wealth creation vehicle for life. Like it owns the shares in my uh, business. Um, It owns my share portfolio, whatnot. Um, And I've just purchased a commercial property um, in the name of the trust. And my rationale was, because the trust is registered for GST, I'll get the GST back. And the upside is, well, the downshot, the upshot, whatever shot you look at it, my, my land tax threshold for that property hmm. starts at zero. zero. Yep. So I've taken the view that, yeah, I'll take the GST now and cash flow the land tax. And, um, and put the GST money into a something a, else. A boat. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so some great investment. Some decreasing asset yeah. somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So, and that's what I mean, like, and that's the first real property that I'll own in my trust. Mm-hmm. And yes, I do need a higher deposit. Um, the trust will actually be on the title as the owner or the corporate trustee will be. Um, so, and it's not my first investment property. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's a much more complex financing structure. You know, typically yeah. lower LVRs, higher interest rates and frequent reviews. 
so no 30-year loans here, guys. No. Um, you know, you're likely to have annual reviews and, you know, what happens if you have a bad year and your income doesn't service it after the first year? And yeah. if COVID hit and it's a, a cafe rented it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It can so, be as low as 15 years, can't it? What's that? Commercial loans. I've, um, they typically have annual reviews though. Yeah, but I, I've... Um, I had a friend of mine apply for one not long ago and they all they offered them was a 15-year loan. Hmm. But with annual reviews. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. because <laughs> it's just we want that risk off our book yeah. Yeah. sooner than later. Mm. Yeah, so I mean yeah. it's not for everyone and again the only reason I've done it is that diversification play long term but also I'm happy with the, I guess, the risk profile curve and yeah. you know it's not the majority of my wealth and all that stuff yeah so, so once you've found a tenant they often stay for a long time yeah rent typically got by inflation um yeah they meet most of the outgoings so it's once you've got a tenant in there they are quite low maintenance i think in in directly answering emily's question when does one consider it it's common for business owners to own maybe their own commercial premise to run their office or whatever. And that's they often do. a reason to have a self-managed super fund. Yeah. So so that might be the most common. Secondary to that, it's probably, well, I've got enough resi shares and super and I've got some spare cash laying around. I want to diversify into some commercial stock. Yeah. So if you're running a business where location matters, um, owning it yourself means that you own your goodwill, not not your landlord. Mm. So if you're a dentist or a vet or a doctor or a retail or a cafe. Cafe. How many cafes like are at the mercy of their commercial lease? That's yeah. right. Like it's wild. Mm. Yeah. So as I say, your your landlord really owns your goodwill. Mm. Uh, there's another question here uh, from Jennifer Burke. Or uh, she talks about equity. I think we'll move on from that. But also, why negative geared properties? You always hear this, but from what I've had explained to me, the tax benefits are generally not worth the extra money you need to put in. Is it really that bad to have positively geared properties? I mean, I'll go out and I'll even say I'd rather positively geared properties than negative. Yeah, and negative gearing is a function of your funding decision, not of the property. Exactly. So all property is cash flow positive. As long as it's got a tenant. As long as it's got a tenant and you will be positive or negative depending on how much debt you put in. So the choice as to how you fund it is what drives whether it's negative or positive. Mm. And you, you can make any property be positively geared by putting less debt into it. So that's a funding decision and negative gearing has the advantage, well, sorry, to the extent that negative gearing is generated by depreciation rather than cash, it's a free kick from the tax office. Yeah. Be- because you're getting tax refunds at your top marginal rate now and it's getting clawed back later at capital gains rates at half your rate when you, if and when you eventually sell. So it's a free kick. John, yeah, you I talk agree. about... Um, cash flow positive in terms of cash flow and the tax wash up. Mm. So talk maybe about your calculator that a lot of people probably need to hear about. Yeah, so the numbers don't lie. So I think understanding the the cost to run your property versus the income associated with it is ultra critical 
before you transact, That's not right. after the cooling That's off right. period. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, we developed a, a calculator that, that does all that and you can change the variables of it, interest rates, um, change it from P&I to interest only, how that might look because obviously interest only periods are only for a period of time. Um, and understand the the vacancies and adjust that as you need. And you can really do some solid forecasting, not only for one property, but across multiple properties. So if you're building a portfolio, you can play that out with your scenarios um, before you um, transact on that first property. Mm. Uh, Sarah Downey has a question here, um, and I'll loosely paraphrase, uh, rent vesting, no PPO. Uh, I've been trying to think of which is better as an approach. Two properties worth less uh, purchased within the 12 months or worth more? As in, are you better off buying one property worth 500 or two properties in different locations worth 250 each? Does this simply come down to the locations and the rental yield? Why do most people buy one worth more? Do people work off the assumption that the higher value property will, generally speaking, have a higher rental yield and possible capital growth as well? due to its higher initial value. So Vince touched on this at the very start. You know, if someone walked in with, you know, and we'll just take it round numbers so it's a little bit more uh, understandable because I don't know if you can get many properties for 250 at the moment, but, um, you know, if you can have a million dollars walk in the door, are we doing two 500s or a 400 and a 600? Because surely to me it it's diversification and a risk play, but we've got a hassle yeah, factor. All, yeah, but yeah, and it's also a... Cost and return. I mean, my um, John's probably got his own views on this, but I mean, my view is that you should generally be buying within ten to fifteen percent of the median wherever you're buying. So that's going to start setting a, a bracket. Cheaper properties tend to have higher relative costs because you know re- replacing the hot water service costs the same whether it's a seven hundred thousand dollar house or a two hundred thousand dollar house. Um, getting the plumber out costs the same in both cases. Um, your rates don't change generally in proportion. So the percentage cost of running it tends to be higher for a cheaper property. Mm. You tend to have more problems with tenants. Gross generalisation, but... Um, if like, we're talking about a million dollars, let's let's move up from 250 because that I agree with you position there but if you go to like 500,000 you can get something a relatively new-ish villa type thing would you say that a cheaper property has a potential to be rented at closer to a closer mark to your repayments than it would if it was let's say a million dollar property I think yields generally fall with rising prices that if you go and buy a three million dollar house in Mossman you might get a yield of two Mm. Um, you, you buy a million dollar house in Balmain, you might get a yield of three. You buy a million dollars in Hornsby, you might get a yield of five. So before John goes on his tirade and rant, I'll throw the what if, for example, you had that million dollars, you did per, you did build the one, um, like you bought an old 800 square metre thing, knocked it over two villas that you owned and at least you've got the one property in the same location and you've got the two different income sources. So you've at least got some de-risking on the rent by having two tenants on the one block. So what do you do in Mm. this situation, John? Yeah, look, it's a really good one, isn't it? I I think 
the two fifties are they available? Yeah, they are, but you've got to go far and wide. Rural, um, which I, is I think it might have been a figure of speech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The five hundred, um, I think it really depends on Sarah's cash flow and what she can handle. Like you mentioned, Vince, about the yield decreasing as the purchase price goes up, generally pretty solid. So if she can afford a million-dollar property that she can cash flow and understand the the shortfall in holding that property, provided that she hasn't got a huge amount of cash to, to buy with it, I would probably go a, a million-dollar asset over two 500s, um, provided that cash flow is not going to knock her out. And that's what probably stops most people from buying that million-dollar property is the cash flow, but also maybe the sleep at night factor. So your risk profile around, shit, I've got an $800 mortgage here. This is stressing me out a bit. Yeah. But you wouldn't draw the same conclusion to say in, buy one two million instead of two one millions. So it does, it, no. it does depend on where you are. On the purchase price, yeah. Mm. Question. They've and, of course, been. you only really get diversification if they're in different markets. Or different states. Yeah. Or, I mean, yeah. you get a little bit of diversification because you've got two tenants and you could be half full rather than zero See, full, I, full. This is crazy. Like I've got friends in the States and they're always like, oh, come over here and we'll buy this. Like there's a, a unit yeah. block here with eight units and they're selling it all for 400 grand. Mm. Let's go do it. I love the idea of buying a like a mini development and owning it all and then just managing all the tenants. Can we do that? You, you get sick of them, wouldn't you? Well, you get a rental manager. Oh, you'd have. Oh, you're not dealing with them direct. No, no. I, I support rental managers. <laughs> um, but, yeah, but if you're like a block of six or eight units in Sydney, you know, you're talking yeah, that's the, several, the, several million dollars now. Yeah, it's the area. I think that's yeah. where that would work. The but idea like, is nice, but there's not a lot of it around anymore. But you used to be able to buy those look and at, individually title them. Yes. Um, so it's looking at the upside of what you've got. Can you, in ten years' time, knock it over and build? Well, that one. 50 that, of them. So John's like kind of looking for a property for me to buy. Like, if we get an old shack somewhere, mm. we is in. Well, you can do a JV. Yeah. <laughs> like, do we just knock it over and build some townhouses? You don't like JVs. No, you you're you've got to chill out for one sec. I've said this for years. <laughs> I. Don't like JVs. I wouldn't suggest it as your first rodeo. And this is my risk profile. Mm. Because my life is established, if the JV went south, it's not flushing me. Doesn't define And you. our relationship is robust enough mm. that you would just pay me back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, I agree on all of that except the last one. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, I would entertain the JV thing, yeah. but there's no way I would have done it for my first investment property. Well, what about like, so you talked about having a block of units instead of just buying the one and buying one property. If you were to buy... A block, a block of units for the same price as the shack, surely the block of units are maxed out in terms of their development potential. And therefore, to knock over a block of six units is far more riskier than buying the house next door and knocking that over and doing the development after that. Oh, yeah, I, I'm not saying I would buy a, a set of six and knock it over and rinse and repeat. Right. Longer term, that may be the case when the zoning changes. That, because that would of still be shortage. a potential for... Okay, well, what about yeah. this idea? Like, we did a podcast just recently and we talked about granny flats. Mm. Like, if that we had that million dollars, mm. like, can we diversify 
buy something newish with a on a corner block and there's a granny flat out the back and they're both rentals. I mean, granny flats, they in terms of yield, you can get 30% a year. Yeah. Which doesn't always help you when it comes to borrowing capacity though because a lot of banks will go, I That's don't, cute. <laughs> I don't care what you're getting. I'm capping this at 6%. Yeah. So mm. it helps you with, it helps you live and helps you. See, but but if, you're, if you're like, oh, I just want to buy one more investment property, my third one or whatever like that or my second one, mm. then I'm just going to pump super and focus on paying down my principal yeah. place of residence. Sure, whatever. Um, but as you, if you do want to be the filthy capitalist, out of the deal, chapter seven type Trump guy, like you might not do that as your first property if you want another three after That's it. That's right. Yeah. So the question is, you know, how much you need to borrow and how much, where the money's coming from and what you're planning on doing next. Mm. Um, so would it be really worth, drives worth keeping some of your deposit in your pocket if you wanted to do buy a house and then put a granny flat on the back? Secondary to that, yeah, keep totally. some cash in your pocket to then fund that development afterwards. Yeah, yep. or in Glenn's corner block example, uh, put up a second dwelling on the uh, on the other yeah. adjacent road to maximise your return and get out of that to propel cash into a new venture of some do you, description. Do so it all depends on your next play and, and where yeah. where it is. Yeah, put a, a granny flat on a a yeah, decent sized house in. The northern suburbs, you probably are going to make money. Try doing it in, yeah, inner west. You're probably not. Mm. But but as this shortage of housing gap continues to widen, granny flats are becoming more and more popular. They are, uh, regardless of where it is, not just in the and blue chip. Well, areas. this is interesting because Mike, dirty Mike here, he does designing and construction chat stuff. Yeah. Stuff like councils have got a. a Dirty, wet appetite for granny flats, don't they? No, no, they don't. Really? Oh, oh that's what I was going to ask John. Like a secondary dwelling is well, no, a dual occupancy carries more council fees than a granny flat, mm. and more conditions yes. as a dual occupancy rather than a granny flat. Is there a point at which this the dual occupancy becomes much more viable than a secondary dwelling than a granny flat? You know, you talk yeah. about the corner block. Surely, I mean, in let's say Budgie Boy, the dual occupancy won't be as profitable, especially for the cash outlay as a granny flat. Because so, what, what's the could, distinction? What? Yeah, what's the difference when we talk about dual lock and granny flat? Strata titles, extra parking, separate water and oh, so power meters. Dual occupancy, ones that you can sell separately. Yeah, oh, okay. but, you, but they're not sold on separate titles. No. They're, stra- They're a strata title. But without yeah. a body corp. Without the body corp. Okay. So in, in that corner block example, I would Torrens title two houses. Okay. And build a second house, yeah. separate driveway. And then subdivide it after the fact. Subdivide it's it once it's complete. And in every state that's different. Some want to subdivide it first. But governments want the granny flats. They approve based on regulations in New South Wales. The, the, it actually overrides the local council as long as you can yeah. – Create um, it will tick all the boxes of the requirement, like yeah. and, they, and they can be great with helping mum and dad get better age pensions as well. So there's yeah, they've got lots of pluses. I was speaking to a developer this morning actually, and when he went to do one uh, a dual lock, they said, "No, nah, we want you to put four units there." They actually wanted him to build more. The council, yeah, in Melbourne. 
Wow. So because they appreciated the shortage of housing in the wow. in the suburb, which that's the first time I'd heard of that. There was something out where I live with the planning permissions that be- I was in this weird zone where like if I was 10 minutes inland, you couldn't do three townhouses on a block, but over in near the beach, you could. Does that sound familiar? It'd just be a zoning thing, I would imagine. Same council, same regulations usually, yeah. Yeah, okay. It'd be like an R1 zone or an R2 zone. Yeah. yeah. And a, a regu- It'll wash into the ocean in 40 years. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and Budgie Woy, for example, is on the central coast. Um, so, yeah, Dirty Mike. All right, so, like, okay, so Dirty Mike, yeah. you know, you draw a lot of homes and all that and deal with a lot of councils. Like, do you see any... Like just something that comes up time and time again with the councils that you deal with, which delays delays or could be a, a showstopper for someone either building an investment property or something like that. Not so much anymore. I think with the complying development, as John touched on, where the state government got involved and made sure that everything complies across the state. If you comply with the complying development standards, which is a state regulation, then subsequently the councils are also using that formula of approval so that doesn't matter so much anymore going from council to council if it doesn't comply with the complying development standards that's when you have to you know navigate talk with the planner in that area talk about what they want to do but a lot of councils will have um, the goals of that area um, and what they want to see in that area and then that will also coincide with the complying development but if you can tick all the boxes you don't ever have to go and speak to council are councils it's funny like a council's becoming a thing of the past i mean the central coast when he went bankrupt mm-hmm. i think i think they and like the new south wales government was to a, a certain amalgamating degree, them. Yeah. i think we do need them to um pick up the bins. Change, well and change <laughs> mow zonings them, mow the, uh, yeah um, you know helps the state government figure out well this is becoming um, a more dense area, we need to allow people, like John was saying, the council said, no, no, do four townhouses. Don't do a mm. granny flat, do four townhouses or whatever. So they're important in that regard and, you know, feed on the ground in the area. But in terms of getting stuff approved, I would try and avoid councils or at least adhere to those complying development regulations and then go through council and it should just breeze through anyway. Because it's trumped council's own requirements anyway. If it ticks the boxes, it ticks the boxes and that's yeah. that. And that's where you can go with a private certifier, can't you, instead yeah. of having to deal with council and much yeah. easier to deal with because they're business-minded. Whereas Private certifiers have given councils a kick up the bum in terms of, like John's saying, they're business-minded, they've got to keep clients happy where council doesn't, but councils are doing that complying development, guaranteeing a two-week turnaround for things that are complying development so it's going to be a much of a And that's muchness. probably just New South Wales only that you can speak oh, to. That's all I can speak to, yeah. I don't know about anywhere else. Yeah. And, of course, none of that complying development applies in areas with heritage overlays or... No, hu- that's or right. As front. soon as it becomes bushfire, flood-prone, heritage, yeah. um, Aboriginal interest, all that type of stuff, then complying development's out the window and that's where you need the councils to make an educated decision. Oh, because they're on the ground. Specific yeah. to that, very specific to that lot house mm. development, all that type of stuff. There's a question here from Vanessa Lee. When do you need to go, John? Um, you need to go soon too, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. Ten minutes ago. Yeah, same. Mm. I've got to go get my um, PCR test before I go overseas. 
Um, Vanessa Lee, is it a good strategy to pay minimum repayments on investment properties and pay down your PPOR as fast as you can? Yeah, probably. Yes. Yeah, Next question. Um, <laughs> the way I and we will say uh, the way I see it is you can claim interest on tax on the investment property, but your but not your principal place of residence. I've always done this strategy, but open to a better strategy. Yeah, no, keep 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 on. keep on keeping on. Also, once PPOR mortgage is paid, should we pour our money onto our investment properties? Is it a bad idea to own an investment property outright? Well, if you're making money, you're making money, aren't you? Well, this but is the thing. Know. Like, I've got all my loans on principal and interest. Like, who cares? I'm happy to. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to pay down an investment property. I mean, today with the fact that you have to pay more for interest only, the economics aren't as strong as they used to be. Mm. Yeah, if you you've got, you've got to pay, you know, 0.5% more per year, the tax benefit sort is m- more or less whittled away. So mm. I'm much less concerned about it now. Um, but if you're going to eventually rely on these pieces, these properties to provide you with a retirement income, you probably do need to get them fairly lowly geared by the time you retire. Mm. I wouldn't say necessarily paid off, but... Um, yeah, keep it at a manageable level. It gives you enough cash, li- cash flow for your life. But you can't wreck it by paying down debt. No. It's not the worst thing that can happen, is no, it? No, I mean, no. everyone gets their panties in a knot, um, but it's fine to pay down debt. You know, am I going to pay more on my tax-deductible debt or non-tax-deductible debt? Well, if I'm paying extra, I know which debt it's going to. Yeah. I mean, certainly when the time you get to retirement, you're far better off having a million, a, you know, two properties worth a million dollars fully paid off than four 50% geared. Yeah. When you just look at the yield. Mm. But you, not the growth. Yeah. Because uh, you don't care about growth really at that point. So on this whole portfolio stuff, um, there are institutions out there, financial ones, that will reduce your mortgage on your principal place and jack up the interest uh, or the loan on your investment properties. And it probably only works with maybe three, four, five investment properties, but that way you get to, case in point to this um, question is pay down your non-deductible debt quicker and keep your uh, deductible debt higher, um, which is quite a good strategy, but not all lenders will do it. That's right. And you may find that you have to give up so much on availability of debt to make that saving that you're actually better off mm. paying more to get high gearing. Yeah, the interest rates on your investment property is much higher. Yeah. Your interest rate on your own home, much lower. Yeah. So but the banks, who, the lenders who do it have much stricter serviceability requirements. Yeah. And there's only certain bands you can do that within. The tax ruling is pretty restrictive. Yeah. I've um, Just to throw a thing out that I've heard people say that have kids – we want to buy three investment properties, one for each kid. Um, what's everyone's thoughts on that mindset? I've got a view, certainly, because I'm leading the witness here. Um, well, my personal view is that you should fasten your own face mask before attending to others, and you shouldn't be looking at that until you've got your yeah your own home paid off, um, well on the way to retirement sorted, and the kids' education sorted. 
you haven't got those three things knocked off, giving them a free leg up into the housing market is probably a pretty low priority. Mm. You're allowed to have goals, Glenn. You're allowed to have dreams. <laughs> let let people dream. Well, and, and also do what you want. I really don't care. My kind of vibe is if you just focus on building wealth when the time arises to help one of the kids out, whether it is with a deposit, you can sell a property and split it three ways. You yeah. like just carve it out or, you know. But surely this is, surely those kids only get those properties when they pass away. No, they would use no, them as no, a no, some people, people say yeah. Some people want to gift it yeah. and all that where I'm of the view, just build wealth. And when the time comes, you can make a decision on how you're gifting and what asset. And like, I just think the the whole thing and particularly like, if you're doing it like if there was a if you died prematurely and you're like, oh David, this one's yours and Mary that one's yours. Well, what if Mary's is worth more than David's yeah. at the time? Like, and so where's Johnny's one? Yeah, yeah, little Johnny. Oh yeah, we forgot the third kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean my, my promise my promise to my boy was that if you save your five percent deposit, I'll pay your LMI for the rest of it. And the advantage of that is helps them on the way in, gives them an incentive to save, and they've demonstrated that they're good for it. Mm. Whereas if you just hand it over, um, yeah, I don't think it's gross generalisation here, um, but it's probably not respected or no, teach appreciated as much. Mm. Yeah. All right, good chat. Oh, are you going? Are you? We're not finished yet. Oh, we're not. No, I don't know. <laughs> John's fire, wrapping fire it up. still roaring away. Yeah, no. Well, we probably should go. But um, look, it's it's a good discussion, and I know we didn't solve everyone's problems or whatnot. Um, just do what you want us to, everyone. Get some advice. Um, any final words? We'll go around the circle. Dirty Mike, any final words on this? What are you doing here anyway? <laughs> Just took a half day because I felt sick and then I saw your post on Instagram. I, come by. <laughs> I miss Ben and Chris. That's a bummer. But. Uh, and I, I don't know what part of the story I missed about the dirty bit. <laughs> okay, so... There is none. No, okay, so in the movie, the John, other... John's got to go. Oh, you can wait. <laughs> In the is this the after party? Yeah, no, no, this is the episode. All right, you go, John. See you, John. All right. Thanks, folks. See ya. You can follow John. Uh, he's got a podcast called My Millennial Property. Is that calculator on your website, John? Or is it? Yeah, just click the link. Yeah. We'll put a link in the show notes. Three ninety nine. Four easy installments of $75. <laughs> after pay on um, PayPal. <laughs> it's not even an after party because this whole episode is just an after party. Um Grab some coffee on the way out if you want. Um, yeah, so there's a movie called The Other Guys with Will Farrell. Oh, okay. And you've got to watch it. And there's this homeless guy called Dirty Mike. Oh, okay. And he has group sex with the boys in a Prius. <laughs> Is that possible? Well, anything's possible. So, and they always talked about Dirty Mike and the boys. Oh, okay. So, my group of friends, we just decided to call Dirty Mike, Dirty Mike. Oh, okay. But the weird irony is I, I started dating a girl who I'm now married to and she, her car was a Prius, which <laughs> <laughs> so I got to drive frequently. <laughs> there was a very well-known tax barrister around town mm-hmm. in, the early, in the early days of the internet who used to post in all these property investment forums as Coasty Mike. <laughs> ah. So... Coasty Mike. Because he lived on the Central Coast. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, So, yeah, any final words, Vince? Um, Yeah, do what you want. Um, (laughs) I mean, 
that sounds to be flippant, but really, yeah, it's called personal finance for a reason. Mm. It's personal, mm. and what matters is that you achieve what you want to do. And I would probably say, if your property strategy is built off a seminar that you go to and have to buy a six thousand dollar course, and if anyone starts with not. those tax office statistics I gave out earlier and says that's a sign that most people get it wrong and get stuck at one, mm. he's probably trying to sell you something yeah. and you probably shouldn't be buying it. Mm. Yeah. Because the real answer is they probably discover diversification. Yes. And that's it. Like, And this is, and I don't know, I'll say this in front of John, like, like the property mindset, that's all good. As long as you know that you're in one asset class, that's fine. Like you've got to have that moment where, you know, and a lot of people go, oh, why don't you set up a self-managed super fund for your and buy some more property. property? I'm like, freaking hell, I've got half of Australia in my own name. Like, why do I want more? Like, yeah. And it's easy for, yeah. If you look at the last 40 years, you go, this has been a license to print money generally. Mm. Um, so it's very easy to forget that it isn't always a one-way street mm. and leverage makes the downside look worse. Exactly. And remember that it took until 1962 for the Melbourne property market to recover from the 1890 crash. Wow. In quality. 1890 crash. How old were you at that time? I wasn't around. (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't immigrated to Australia then. No, that's right. (laughs) All right, peeps. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for driving up to the coast, Vince. Yeah, thanks for the marshmallows. No worries. Thanks for dropping into the campfire. Oh, listen. I was here for the free coffee. Yeah. Have you had one yet? No. We'll see if they can make you one. Mm. Yeah. Okay, bye. How's my bedtime? Too late for coffee. (laughs) We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 